Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Yeah, I love it. It was great. The food was great. The atmosphere was very uh, free. Yeah, I could eat this every day. I could be naked every day. That's a customer who dined recently in London's first naked pop-up restaurant, the Bignati. Intrepid reporter Olivia Humphreys talks to us about her experience dining naked and, of course, the food. I also interview Jonathan Balcom. He's author of What a Fish Knows. They may be smarter than your pet dog. And Dan Pashman from the Sporkful podcast has a solution for the vegetarian Thanksgiving. But first, our own Raina Javeri explains how to make a Milk Street roast turkey and gravy. Raina, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Thank you. Thanksgiving is coming, and uh, this year I made a promise to myself. I'm not brining the bird, okay? It's kind of a pain. It's messy. I have to get the big cooler out. And secondly, I actually don't like white meat that's that's wet or soggy, which sometimes happens with brining. So this year we're going to go back to a simpler method. We're just putting the turkey in the oven, and we're using something that Fannie Farmer used, which is basting. That's right, Chris. We're going back to basting, but doing it better. What we're going to do is douse this bird with a reduction of brown ale and fresh herbs. And these combine to form this delicious malty base. And before you ask, we don't have to be constantly babysitting this bird. We're only going to baste it twice in this recipe. And there's a couple of other key points in this recipe that we really love. Foil and fish sauce. I'll talk about the fish sauce first. It adds really a savory depth to our basting liquid. And it makes for this really umami-rich gravy, and you don't taste the fish sauce at all. So before you get worried about fishiness in your turkey, it's not there. And the foil, we actually use to wrap on top of the turkey, which traps some of the moist heat to get the breast meat really succulent without making it wet. So you're going to like this. And at the end, we take off the, the foil about halfway through and let the skin brown. So we have crispy skin, succulent breast meat, and no brining. 
So, so you're reducing down the ale to start with? Is that the first step? So we combine beer. We like to use brown ale for this basting liquid, and we combine the ale with uh, lots of thyme, rosemary, sage, and bay leaves, garlic, and onions. We reduce that at a simmer for about 20 minutes. And the one thing you want to note here is not to use hoppy beers because they bring a, a bitter note to the reduction, and we don't want that. And then after the turkey is cooked, we make a gravy using strained juices in the roasting pan. So the bird stays breast side up the whole time. You don't have to turn it around. The oven temperature is consistent. I mean, it's just, it's really easy. It's very easy. You make a reduction, you baste, roast, baste again, make a gravy, and eat. So, Raina, you... You solve my problem for Thanksgiving. I don't have to brine the bird. I don't even have to fiddle around with it in the oven. No flipping, no brining, no nothing, Chris. You're very welcome. This is a tender, tender turkey. The meat is tender all around, and we really love this old but new way to roast turkey. I guess I have to say thank you, Raina. Nice job. (laughs) You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for brown ale turkey and gravy along with all of our Thanksgiving recipes on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You know, I hunt and eat meat, I fish and eat fish, but I've never thought much about the emotional intelligence of, say, a halibut. Jonathan Balcom, he's author of What a Fish Knows, completely changed my view of the undersea world. It turns out that fish can recognize human faces, they operate competitive cleaning stations on reefs, big fish hunt with small fish, and much like a dog or cat, they become attached to their owners if they are in captivity. I started by asking Jonathan to define the term sentience. So what defines sentient being? Is it the ability to see yourself from a distance, to use a tool? How do you define that term? Quite simply, sentience is the capacity to feel. There's another jargon term, sapience, the capacity to think. So those are distinctive, although it probably feels like something to think. So sentience probably includes a sapience and, and, and cognition. And I've certainly included a, quite a lot of material in this book about how fishes solve problems and, as you say, t- use tools, how they socialize, recognize things, have good memories, and, th- and this sort of thing. Um, it includes pain and pleasure. It also includes the senses, uh, the, the various types of senses, the five familiar ones with us, vision, taste, smell, etc., plus some other ones that we don't have. What was the first point, first piece of scientific evidence where scientists sat up and said, wait a minute, um, a fish knows a lot more than we thought? I think probably the best example, Chris, comes from I don't know if it's the first example, but it's certainly the best study. It comes from uh, what are called the cleaner-client mutualism or symbiosis, which occurs largely on reefs. There's uh, fishes of various species, even some shrimp, who make a living by plucking parasites and algae and what have you off the the bodies, including the inside of the gills and inside the mouth, off of these so-called client fishes of of dozens and dozens of species who who will line up to wait their turn to be serviced. And it's it's a class mutualism, a mutual benefit. It's a trade-off of uh, food. The cleaners get fed, they get nourishment, and the clients get a spa treatment and a parasite removal service. And there's probably at least 100, probably over 200 scholarly papers that have been published on this. It's an incredibly well-studied and a remarkably sophisticated social system, not just among fishes, but among any animal. And I think you said, if I got the number right, that in one particular case, a fish went back 60 or 70 times in a day 
there was quite, maybe that was too much, but there was dozens of times the same fish went back for another cleaning. I don't think it is too much. I think that number's about right. It, it almost sounds like addiction, and I think uh, <laughs> we should be open to the possibility. Consider that fishes, like other vertebrates, are are um, subject to becoming addicted to certain drugs if they are given the opportunity to have them, if they have a pleasurable effect, as as it can affect us and and other animals. And so, the pleasure of having this being fussed over, which includes often uh, the cleaners will pause from their cleaning and uh, gratuitously give. Uh, caresses by, by uh, stroking the client with their pectoral fins. Uh, presumably, this is to curry favor, to, to remind the client mm. that, hey, you know, I'm giving good service. This is good stuff. If you come back to me, uh, it'll be worth, it, worth your time. Uh, this is understandable because the cleaners, as I say, are, are making a living. They want clients. It's important mm. that they keep the clients coming back for more. So here are a few things that really stood out. I mean, I just stopped reading because it was so amazing. Fish, I don't know, many fish can send out essentially sonar, a frequency, and when they get in the range of a fish with the same frequency, they can change it or they get into an area where they could be prey and they just stop sending it out. Why do they have that frequency? What's the point? Yeah, the fishes you're probably describing are the ones who've evolved in murky waters. And uh, what they do is they've evolved a, a curious means of communication which uses electricity. So they use electric organ discharges, or EODs for short. And um, when they're swimming in the murky water, they put out these, these EODs, and that's a way to communicate with other individuals. And each one has their own just slightly different distinctive EOD pattern. Sometimes they're so similar that the, each fish will, will fine-tune and adjust their EOD to um, make, make it easier to not be confused with who's who. And uh, as you say, they will switch off. They will stop EODing, if you like, uh, while they're swimming by, say, uh, they may be in an area where they think there's a predator that, that's been detected, or they're swimming by a resident territory holder who they know is not going to be very happy if they're there, so they mm. could just go silently by. The, the, the fact that a fish will voluntarily stop making signals, the fact that these fishes will fine-tune and adjust their EODs, these are indicators of an animal who is not just uh, a thing, but is actually a responsive, flexible um, individual. And I do discuss personalities and various other aspects of these animals' biology that, that supports that. So fish, uh, some fish can actually recognize the individual faces of divers in the water. A study that sadly is not in my book because it came out so recently. My book was already published before I, I caught wind of this new study. Yeah, it's uh, it's been well known f- for a long time that fishes recognize each other. So they have individual recognition. We, we can look at a small school of uh, diagonal banded sweet lips, for instance, and they all look the same but uh, to us. But uh, they're, you know, they're, they're members of their own species. They, they're very acutely tuned into all sorts of things that we're not, such as different smells, different sounds, different shapes. And they're hanging out with these other individuals 24 seven. So not surprisingly, perhaps they recognize each other. This one really shocked me that one fish and the, and the, and the fish groupings were interesting. A grouper could signal to a moray eel that they should hunt together, uh, which just blew my mind. And then, then the grouper, when it finds food, would hang upside down, you know, face down over the mm. food up to almost half an hour to signal that there was, there was prey there. That, that, that's amazing. 
Yeah, that body of research has just come to light in the last uh, few years, and, it, and it's uh, it's a really um, impressive example of interspecies communication. Uh, to use some scientific jargon, referential signaling, where one fish, the grouper in this case, is making a signal to another fish, which refers specifically to uh, a desire, in this case, to hunt together, to forage cooperatively as a team, uh, because groupers are big and fat and chunky, they can't swim into the nooks and crannies of the reef, whereas the moray eel, which is kind of like a slender, long, you know, ferret of the sea can go chasing fishes into these smaller areas of the reef. And if the eel fails to catch the fish and the fish successfully flees into open water, the grouper is waiting to catch the fish. Hmm. And as you say, groupers will will wait for as long as 25 minutes uh, signaling to a a nearby moray eel, pointing to a fish, you know, essentially saying, hey, over here, you know, come on over here. There's something in here worth, worth checking out. So this is a food program, so let's talk about fish as food. 200 billion fish caught each year, really? That's actually— Was it million or billion? I mean, it just sounded like (laughs) a lot. Sadly, billion, at least if you care about fishes, which which I certainly do, and we all ought to because uh, we, we do depend on the oceans. We can come back to that. But yeah, a conservative estimate is 150 to 200 billion a year. A more um, liberal estimate is over 2 trillion. Uh, so the numbers are truly astronomical. I think it's important to point them out though. Typically, commercial fish catches are measured in tons and sadly, it's millions of tons. But um, one of the key messages of my book is that we're talking about individuals here. We're talking about unique individuals, and the numbers are irrelevant to that fact. And so it's, it's, I think it's important that we try to uh, represent those numbers in terms of numbers of individual fishes. And I did a little math, and if you line them up end to end, they would reach the sun and back, and uh, you might have a, a couple of hundred billion left over. Hmm. So uh, fish farming has become very big. And you talk about the psychology of fish. They get depressed in fish farms. Could you just talk about that, what we know about fish who were farmed? Yeah, this is another recent study that isn't included in my book. But uh, yeah, a study just came out about a month ago f- uh, out of Norway finding that uh, a large number of salmon, on young salmon on um, these farms become listless. Uh, they stop feeding. They are stunted. They eventually float to the top. Uh, they don't move around and they die. They weigh about one-third of the others in their cohort. And uh, by measuring cortisol, which is a stress hormone in the blood of these fishes, they found that their cortisol levels were very high, indicating that they they appeared to be, well, the, this, the, wor- the wording that the scientists used was severe depression. So if one accepts your proposition that the fish, every fish is an individual with a personality and a point of view, et cetera, and you accept the notion that we are catching 200 billion-plus fish a year, what's your retort about feeding people? In other words, do you say we should never eat fish? Do you say we should, uh, like some people have in animal rights, talk about raising them in a more humane or killing them in a more humane way? Where do you come out at the end of the day? 
Yeah, good question. Uh, I would say where we have a choice, and I would say that's the the great majority of humanity. Not not all though, but the, the great majority. Uh, we should uh, be very conscientious in our food choices, and uh, we should choose to be plant based. Uh, plant based eating is the best for our health. It's the best for animals. It's the best for the environment. It's pro- probably ultimately the best for the economy. People don't realize the actual cost of uh, eating animal products, but uh, the subsidies are enormous. So if you take factor in the subsidies, there's the economic benefits are also there. So um, yeah, I I definitely, you know, it's not my job to tell readers what to do. Uh, I give them the information and people got to make their own decision. But uh, I chose to stop eating fishes some time ago. And uh, it's not like I don't enjoy my food. And so uh, I do recommend people change their dietary choices because that's that's really the bottom line. If if people, uh, whenever you buy a product, you're essentially telling the manufacturer, do it again. So you you, uh, you're supporting that industry. And that's a choice we can make or not make. Okay, so I I eat meat. I've raised uh, on a farm pork and beef and uh, and uh, chicken, etc. But I do believe in doing it the best possible way. What what would you say to me, someone who is going to continue to eat fish? Probably, what kinds of choices do I have given the fact I'm still going to eat fish? Are there good choices and bad choices within that context? I don't know if that's good and bad. It's probably better and not so good. I mean, there's certainly worse choices. There are a number of fish species that are in really big trouble. Bluefin tuna is a, is a good example. But there are a lot of so-called commercial fisheries that have collapsed in the last 50 years. An estimate is that uh, just from last year that we were about, about ha- we've lost about half of all marine life in the last 45 years. Uh, so uh, I would say do your homework. Uh, follow the, to the source. How are those fishes being caught? How are they being farmed? What are the conditions like? And do you accept these conditions? Do you accept the way they died? Do you accept the way they were raised? And, and uh, you know, you got to make your own decision there, but do some homework and try to cause the least harm within that context. Moving on to a more cheerful topic. There was a point in your book, you were talking about a fish in a tank. I think it was a scientist who kept the fish. And the scientist slept on the right side of the tank and the fish would always sit on the right side. And then he changed his sleeping patterns to sleep on the left side. And all of a sudden, the fish moved over left side. He liked to be on the same side as the person sleeping. Yeah, that was an Oscar fish. It's a kind of cichlid, and they're they're pretty popular as pets. They're they're uh, they're predaceous. They love their food like most of us do. And um, you know, a cynic might say, "Well, hey, it's the the guy. He's the one that feeds this fish, so he wants to be near the guy all the time." Or is it more of an affectionate, uh, affiliative type of thing? I mean, it's pretty remarkable. We've really, really been selling these animals short. They're aware, they're alert, they can form bonds and relationships with others. This was a great story. 80 feet down in the ocean, there's a six-foot diameter, perfectly created circular pattern. And it turns out it was done by a five-inch puffer fish who was creating a work of art, I assume, to attract a mate. Uh, And he also decorated the pattern by crushing shells in his mouth. Um, That's purely uh, art for the sake of romance? Yeah, as far as we can tell. I mean, this was just discovered a few a few years ago, and it was a bit of a mystery when this diver discovered it. Uh, so he put a camera down there and, and uh, left it running, and and then uh, they soon realized what was going on. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a classic example of uh, sexual selection: fussy, choosy, 
demanding females over generations uh, can drive males to uh, spend a lot of time and energy to try and impress them because if females are going to choose the peacock with the fanciest tail or the fish who builds the most beautiful circular mandala a nesting station on the bottom of the water. Um, if they're going to be choosy about that, then that's going to drive evolution towards males being more and more elaborate with their displays. And that seems to be what's happened here. So males who've produced a nice, beautiful structure will attract a female. And then if he's successful, then they'll they'll mate and lay the, she'll lay their eggs and he'll fertilize the eggs on that nest site. So let's use the awful term smart. Would you, people would say, most people would say, fish, fishes are not as smart as we are. Or maybe some people would say, fishes have a different kind of intelligence than we do. Or even now, maybe some, some mammals or fishes actually are smarter than we are in some respects. How, how would you, although I know it's a terrible comparison, how would you compare us to the world of fishes? We like talking about smartness because we are we are very intelligent in our own ways. Although, you know, uh, fish has never invented cigarettes or atom bombs or bird cages. I mean, there's some pretty awful things we've come up with in our in our history. And I think so. That's the that's the baggage of being smart. Uh, the baggage of uh, of evolving to walk on two legs and thereby freeing our hands up so we could uh, manipulate with our hands, which I think probably played a big role in the evolution of our large brain. But you know, part of this is 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 that that I think is really poignant is we don't have any say in who we're born as. We don't have any. Not only we we don't have a say in uh, which family or which gender we are. We don't have any say in which species we're born as. And I think that should that should breed a little bit of empathy towards others because they had no say either. And th- and let's just say we're we're the smartest. Uh, why does that give us license to dominate and to be cruel or, or hurtful? And we don't have to be. One of the beautiful things about our big brains is that we can be moral. That we have a, a sense of right or wrong and good and bad. And I think we need to wield that much more uh, for the good. Uh, and I think we, we've shown that in the past that we can consider colonialism, uh, the, the, the votes for women, the civil rights movement, uh, the end of the African slave trade. We have shown in recent history that we can make epochal changes for the good. And I think that the, the recognizing that animals have a proper place in the earth is the next great social movement for our species. I've always told my kids that intelligence is relative. I know lots of Vermont farmers who could outbargain the best Wall Street investment banker. And now that we know that fish have emotional intelligence, they use tools, they compete for business at reef-based cleaning stations, and also recognize human faces, it makes me think that the human species is due for a reformed view of our place in the universe. So the next time you see your dog staring up at you, just think, maybe he actually knows something you don't. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up after the break, a visit to London's first naked restaurant. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. 
If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Pop-up restaurants are nothing new, but last summer in London, the first naked pop-up restaurant called the Bignotti opened its doors. Clothing is optional. You can dine in a furnished bathrobe if you like. But our intrepid reporter, Olivia Humphreys, decided to try the full-on naked dining experience. So basically you walk in and you go and get changed in a changing room into your robe and slippers and you put everything that you've brought with you in a locker, including your phone, because they're strictly banned. The actual experience of going into a changing room reminded me maybe a little bit too much of going to the gym or going to the local pool. Didn't really put me in the mood for a delicious five-course meal. So then you go into the restaurant. How did you decide where to sit and what happened next? I was sat in this annex with just two other people and they were a couple who happened to be having an argument. And so there I was without my phone even to distract myself. So I decided to go and find my friend. And he was sat with two guys, which was already perhaps not exactly what I was hoping for. And they happened to be from, um, one was from the Sun newspaper, which is a tabloid here. And the other was from uh, Lads Mag. And the first thing that um, one of them said when we sat down was, oh, phew, I thought I was going to be put with uh, a lot of fat, old, ugly people. Um, which was kind of unfortunate, given the whole idea behind the bunyadi is meant to be, you know, being comfortable with your body and your body type. And um, it's not meant to be sexual in any way. So, um, yeah, that made me feel not entirely comfortable uh, at the start of the meal. But then you eventually decided that you just should go for it and, and have the full experience? Yeah, so probably a few minutes into the meal, the guys all decided to take their gowns off, which may sound brave, but remember that we're sitting at a table, so crucial things are hidden <laughs> for the guys. So I hesitated because it felt like a bit more of a big deal for me as a woman. But as the meal went on, I guess I kind of felt, um, partly because there's very low lighting in the bunyadi, there's just a couple of candles on the table so it's nice and dark um, and I was pretty uncomfortable in this massive gown and I suppose I also felt like I've come to this naked restaurant I really might as well see what it's like and have the kind of full experience so yeah I ended up taking the gown off. So let's go back to the food. Uh, Bunyadi, I guess, means fundamental or natural. What's the concept of the restaurant besides the, uh, the clothing optional? I suppose it's a naked restaurant in that you're probably eating naked, but everything about the food is sort of naked too, in that it's all organic. There's no um, electricity being used in making it. And everything that 
you eat off is either edible itself or it's kind of clay it's very elemental however I'm not sure you know how much all of that is a bit of an excuse for having a naked restaurant so I, I read that cured salmon with seaweed salad you, you mentioned the forbidden fruit fruit salad asparagus with salted almonds and pickled red onions um, steak tartare I mean it sounds actually sounds like the food's pretty good. Was it, was it good? I mean, would you, if you were eating there with your clothes in a normal restaurant, uh, how, what kind of rating would you give the restaurant just on the food? The food was absolutely delicious. Um, I would say four out of five stars, maybe. Every course was really tasty and it was maybe a little bit of a shame to be distracted from it by the whole naked experience. Let's talk about the phones. I mean, a lot of people said that the lack of clothing was less of an issue than the lack of phone. Yeah, that was definitely one of the nicest things about the meal for me was just the fact that we were all not at all distracted and we were all just kind of focused on the conversation and getting to know each other. Kind of made me realize how nice it would be to visit a restaurant where your phone is maybe taken away from you on the door um, and how much just like the knowledge that we have our phones on us and could be checking them at any time sort of does change the dynamic a bit during a meal. Yeah, I think so too. I, I've been against it and I find when I go out to eat, I keep pulling my phone out, which it's sort of like no texting while driving, you know, there should be a rule. I agree. Um, you know, one of the essential experiences at a restaurant, of course, is dealing with a, the weight person. In this case, the weight person is I guess, topless. Did that interfere with your meal at all or that just didn't make any difference? Yeah, I'm sure it did play a part in making us all feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, partly because our waitress was definitely really behind the idea and seemed to be really enjoying her role. Yeah, so they do, the wait staff do wear, they're topless, but they do wear these kind of fig leaf bottom halves, uh, apparently because someone pointed out to the founder that... If they don't, then um, they're kind of uh, the customer's eyeline while they're being served. <laughs> it's kind of going to be compromised a little bit. So they made that concession, gave them fig leaf bottom halves. Uh, so here you are at a table with someone from one of the, the tabloids. And the conversation was typical, which you might expect if you met them at a pub. Uh, or did it change the nature of the conversation? Yeah, I think we possibly were a little bit more open than we would have been had we been clothed. The only thing was because we all, it was the press launch and we all work in the media, we did end up talking about, oh, do you know this person and sort of networking naked. But um, I do think if you were in a small group of close friends, you probably would end up being a little bit more open with each other. Something about being naked does kind of lend itself to that. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. You can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also at MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Dana calling from Petaluma, California. Hi, Dana. How hey, Dana. can we help you? I always get nervous when I say that because I never know if I can help them. Yeah. But we'll try. Oh, we'll try. I, th okay. I think you can help. So, okay. like, tons of people were thinking about Thanksgiving. We're hosting, and I bought last-minute plane tickets for my family. I couldn't turn down a good deal. So we will be gone from Friday night at midnight to Wednesday night at midnight. So I want to know what we can do in advance. 
Wow. <laughs> That's a really wow. good question. You know, I have to say. <laughs> and I'm sure we can do it. And, um, you know, we we're wondering about usually we brine turkey. I know the turkey can't sit for five days. No. You know, what can we put in the freezer? Wow. You've well, said- do you have somebody? No, let's start with turkey. Yes. What was your plan? Well, normally what we would do, we'd buy a fresh turkey and then, you know, have it sit in the fridge for a few days. And the day before, we, my husband would brine it. That, obviously, I know we're not going to do. Well, it, my, my suggestion would be this. Get, get a friend or someone to go out and buy your uh-huh. fresh turkey the day before, two days before. You don't want it five days before. And I braise turkey, actually, now which means you cut the breast, the entire breast is one piece, the legs, et cetera. And you braise it in a covered roasting pan with a lot of liquid and leeks and other things. And uh, it's wonderful because it makes a great gravy. And then the white meat and dark meat, you can take out when the white meat's done. You can just keep cooking the dark meat. So you don't really need to brine it at all if you do that. Well, hey, if she was going to braise it, she could make it now and freeze it. Braised items freeze beautifully. When is your dinner going to be? Uh, probably around 4 o'clock. Well, you know. could b- – brining six to eight hours. Right. So I'm saying you get home at midnight, and I'm really sorry, uh-huh. and you brine the turkey then. You could do the dry brine, you know, under the skin. Just put – rub it with salt and whatever, garlic and herbs. And and then, you know, you will have given it a head start. But I would recommend pushing your dinner back to 6 instead of 4. Okay. Because then that gives you so much more time to get it ready. You can make your cranberry sauce. I think that would be fine if you made it before you left because it's got so much acid and sugar. I would keep the rest of the menu real simple to make your life easier. Maybe just do a whole bunch of roasted vegetables. Just do smashed potatoes instead of mashed potatoes. Well, and and Milk Street just did. Brussels sprouts in a very hot cast iron pan takes about four or five minutes, and you char them. You cut them in half. Wonderful. You you mix them with a little bit of honey and other things, and uh, you char them in the pan and then, then finish it up. And that takes 10 minutes. You don't have to do them in the right. oven. Oh, yeah. well, wonderful. And I yeah. have to say, we read that in your magazine. We did see that. It's a wonderful oh, yeah. recipe. That it's sounds really, so yummy. really quick. Yeah. We also have a sweet potato casserole that's got bay leaf in it and vanilla, and that's also very good. That sounds good, but they'd yeah. have to do that that day. Yeah, that's not too hard, though. No, no. I mean, you're going to – listen, if you – I think the key thing is to push the meal back to 6 o'clock. Okay. You know, if if they come earlier, give them, you know, some little nibbles of some kind. But I, I think really just buy yourself a little more time. This does remind me, though, back in the 1980s, I'd moved into a house in Connecticut and I had a – it was a garland stove. I just had it installed. And, of course, stoves, when they first come in, usually are not calibrated. Yeah. So I was doing a buttermilk pie for Thanksgiving. It took five hours to bake. And so everyone fell asleep on the, on the sofa and chairs in the living well, room. Well, I hope you had two ovens because what were you cooking the turkey in? Well, I'd, I'd already, already done that in a separate oven. So this, this sat there and, yeah, it was wow. a complete disaster. Wow. And now you're making me think about this. And we do have one oven except for the little one that's at the bottom that they sell with some um, ovens that really isn't very good. It basically just keeps stuff warm. So um, – so I'm thinking we might need to go your braised turkey route with freezing it. One thing I, I will suggest, less is more. And, you know, people I've cooked with over the years who are really good cooks, like Julia, for example, and you, Sarah, you know better than I do, she'd serve two things, not eight things. So you can have a turkey. Yeah, that's why it's simplified. And two sides that are on, on the stovetop, not in the oven. I, I think that makes a better Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. 
right. actually. So right. yeah, less is more. Yeah. Well, that all sounds good to me. And you said I really could cook the cranberry sauce on Friday. Yes, because it's got so much acid in it and so much sugar, two preservatives. It's like jam. And the recipe on the back of the bag is fine if you add a little salt. Oh, I love it, that yeah, one. Just add some orange. salt. Can I ask you one last thing? Can I make rolls or something and just have the dough in the freezer, or would I have to make them in advance? You know what I would do? What? Make what I do every year. I make a soda bread. Mm-hmm. I make a whole wheat soda bread, mm-hmm. and it takes literally five minutes. It's dump and stir. You throw it together. It takes 40 minutes to bake, and it's absolutely phenomenal. And you can make it in the morning. Okay, Dana. Thanks. Have- Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Happy Thanksgiving when you get there. We'll be rooting for you. Thank you. Hello, welcome to Milk Street. And who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Carolyn May. Hey, Carolyn. So how can we help you? Well, I was curious because I have a number of old cookbooks and handwritten recipes from family. Exactly how does one accommodate the fact that vegetables and Juices from oranges and things like that are essentially not the same size as they once were. You sure have that one right. I mean, I remember even when I started at Gourmet in the mid-'80s that a half a chicken breast weighed about five or six ounces. Now it weighs about eight. So you're right. That's very difficult. Have you seen that chart? There's a wonderful chart which shows the chicken from the 1950s and 60s and 80s. They're tiny little breasts, like yeah. in the 1950s, yeah. and now they're like five Dolly times Parton. big. Yeah, yeah. the Dolly Parton. So it, <laughs> chicken breast has gone from minimalist to maximalist. Over the, and maximalist. Yeah. Because the perception is that people like white meat better. Yeah. What the government recommends, I mean, from a health point of view, is that the amount of protein you should be eating actually is four ounces. But if you're serving like my husband, you need six ounces. So I would more start with how many people you want to serve and how much protein you want to give them and just go from there. And then in terms of adjusting the rest of it, geez, I'd say the garlic was a lot smaller, right, Chris? I spent a long time cooking out of the original Fanny Farmer cookbook, 1896. Oh. Oh. Things have changed a lot since then. Mm -hmm. But other than flour being different maybe or the sugar, I think in just savory cooking, it didn't seem to... Make a I mean, huge difference. Yeah, I, I think you cook out of a book, do it once, and if it turns out it's not spicy enough or too spicy or whatever, then you just have to adjust for that time period. I think in savory cooking, does it matter if the garlic was bigger? Because the other problem is with the garlic stronger. It's not just size, it's also how much flavor it had. I think you're kind of, you just guessing. I would recommend between four and six ounces per person. You know, if it says four double chicken breasts, so instead of ending up with, you know, pounds of chicken breasts, you'll end up with a pound and a half or whatever. So that's what I would do. The greatest challenge, however, is when you're cooking recipes, particularly baking, where if you use a different amount, such as lemon juice, it not only changes what it tastes like, it can change the ability of a cake to rise. That's true. And those types of things. Geez, I don't know what to tell you about that. That is a complicated one. First of all, I would weigh, if you're baking, I would weigh your flour and sugar, which might be somewhat helpful. Five ounces yeah. for a cup of all-purpose flour. Yeah, but you are right. The thing that could throw it off would be something like lemon juice. But I can't think of what else would because baking recipes are very precise. Well, did the recipe not call for a quantity, like a tablespoon? It did it just say juice of one, one lemon? lemon? Juice of one lemon. Gosh. I guess it's primarily... The citrus, yeah, because everything else would be measured, yeah. I think it's trial and error. I think that's what you're going to have to do. I'm sorry. It's not very scientific of you, Sarah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. At the end of the day, 
you just make the recipe. And, and then you have to go back and make it again. You can adjust. But yeah. I, I don't think it's a huge problem. Yeah. So. Excellent. All right. Okay. Thanks, Carolyn. You're very welcome. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring at one 855 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Coming up after the break, Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast talks to us about a vegetarian's Thanksgiving. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It's time to talk to our regular contributor, Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. Welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me, Chris. What scurrilous idea are you going to foist upon us this week? Well, look, anyone who thinks a lot about food and eating right now is getting ready for Thanksgiving. And so I have been thinking, you know, Chris, like you, I'm a person of great empathy for others. And I have a lot of empathy around this time of year, around Thanksgiving, for vegetarians. Because the Thanksgiving holiday is so, still so centered around the turkey. And... I don't have empathy because I feel that you must eat a turkey to enjoy Thanksgiving. I'm not saying that. There are many delicious vegetarian dishes you can eat at Thanksgiving. But I do still feel that vegetarians are missing out. Because to me, one of the best parts about Thanksgiving is the process of taking a day to cook something that is really huge, physically large, and time-consuming, a momentous dish, the kind of dish that you just would never take the time to cook almost any other time of year except on a holiday. And when you're just eating sort of side dishes and roasted vegetables and all these things, it can be delicious, but it doesn't necessarily feel so special. So I wanted to create a large, time-consuming, difficult dish so that vegetarians could experience the same sort of once-a-year triumph of that centerpiece dish arriving on the table. I hope a veggie turducken is not about to happen. Chris, great minds, man, great uh, minds. Here we go, here we go. That's right. <laughs> and I invented this a couple of years ago, and it's gone through a few different iterations, and there have been many uh, often imitated, I think, but never quite equaled. I created the veggie duckin a few years back, and each year it has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of the number of people talking about it. And I want it to keep growing, and I want it to sort of go off. You know, like, eventually you got to let go of your kids, Chris. they got to go off on their own. They already let go of me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some let go earlier than others. Don't take it personally. <laughs> so with the veggie ducking, here's what I do, okay? You take, ideally you'll take a banana squash, which is sort of the largest squash money can buy. It's two or three feet long. If you're in a part of the country where you can't get a banana squash, you could use two butternut squashes. But you're going to scoop out both halves. You line one half with vegetarian stuffing, and then leeks, then more stuffing, then peeled sweet potatoes, and then the same thing again on top, stuffing, leeks, stuffing, and then the top of the squash. And you roast it, or you roast your two butternut squashes, and then, you know, it takes several hours. It takes a long time to put the thing together. It's huge. It takes a couple hours to cook it, and then you slice it up, put it all on one big platter. But I've heard from a lot of vegetarians that they feel more included in the holiday when they make a veggie duckin. My immediate question is, can you put gravy on it? Sure. You can make vegetarian gravy, oh. vegetable gravy. It's not a substitute for a turkey in a culinary sense or in an eating sense, obviously. It's a totally different thing. But it's a substitute in the sense of momentousness. 
No, this is about cooking something of size, right? Yes. Yes. And is that, I mean, like you're a guy who cooks big meals for lots of people. I mean, I know that you probably cook more than I do, Chris, but I mean, there must be part of you that gets excited for the idea of cooking something really momentous. Yeah, anything that's over 12 pounds, you're definitely in the momentous category. And that's true. It's the cooking of the turkey that frames the day in the kitchen. Right. It is the pulse of the day. The arc of the day is the arc of the turkey. The turkey's story unfolds over the course of Thanksgiving Day. It's the turkey narrative that... (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Yes, yes. Yes. And it's that narrative that I think is missing from a vegetarian Thanksgiving. So I wanted vegetarians to have that. They should be able to have that too. And now they can with the veggie ducking. You know, you've changed many lives right here on Milk Street Radio today. I try. Dan Pashman of the Sparkful Podcast. You've been empathetic as usual towards the vegetarians <laughs> at our Thanksgiving feast. Thank you so much. I'm Christopher Kimmel. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Let's take some more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, and also author of Home Cooking 101. Are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Martha Hawthorne. What is your question? My question is, does laying a wooden spoon across the boiler keep it from boiling over? For me, it works. But everybody that I tell that to says there is no scientific way that this actually works. And so my question is, does it really work or is it my imagination? No, it does really work. And this is more of a sort of an old-fashioned thing that, like, my grandmother used to do. And what I would do in restaurants when the pot started boiling over, I'd just take a whisk and whisk it down. So, you know, the bubbles reach your wooden spoon, and then they burst and sort of dissolve is what it does. Bubbles form at 212, and then if they touch something that's a different temperature, so a wooden spoon, as we know, does not conduct heat, the steam condenses and turns back into liquid, and they just go back down. That sounds That is like... so cool. Uh, well, no, wait, 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 wait. No, wait. no Chris is no. not going to support me. No, 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 no. This is true, Chris. This sounds like... This is... make it true, because I don't oh. want to look like the ignorant one within my friends. You know what? Home cooks for years have done things intuitively, and a lot of times they're right. It's a good thing to understand the science, but sometimes you just know. And, you know, I wish in some ways we didn't have Google and didn't have to look everything up and be exactly right. Well, I mean, okay. We're if, losing um, the intuition. If I like sunrise, do I have to understand the science of, no. of light? No. No. Okay. So it works. It's demonstrably true. Yes. You know, how about a little bit of imagination here? Let's just accept it. Okay. Well, right. you know, if you think about it and you're in the bubble bath and the bubbles are coming up too high and you go and hit them with your hand. With my wooden spoon? Yeah. Well, even with your wooden spoon, it'll take a lot what, more work. What are you doing with a wooden spoon in the bathtub? Sarah? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> my grandchildren put a wooden spoon in the bathtub with them when they're at my house. I just have to keep. It's not the bubbles I worry about. I worry about them hitting each other. Of course, yeah. of course. It's more like <laughs> a weapon. It, but it does work. Conventional wisdom. Yeah, it, it works. And if, well, if it you gets, you know what? I read it in an old magazine, and you're right. Conventional wisdom. It was about old timey ideas for cooking. Right. And I, I preserve a lot, and it works over a pot with jelly. Very good. You've explained it, so now I can tell my friends. Yes. Tell them to be quiet. You just know what you're doing. <laughs> I, I think I Sarah wait. just told me to be quiet. I can't wait. <laughs> okay. Martha, thank you. Nice chatting with you. Thank you. Yeah. You have just made my day by telling me this. Well, you have a wonderful day, and I'm so excited for y'all's new endeavor. Thank you so thank much. You. Take care. Thank you, Take and care. good luck. Thank you. you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Di. 
Do you have a dilemma for us that we can help you solve? I do, and I'm wondering if, you know, there is a solution to it. I make this Marcella Hazan tomato sauce recipe that has cream in it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a creamy tomato sauce. And one time I had half and half, and I put half and half in it, and the half and half curdled. And I've had the same thing happen when I make, like, beef stroganoff, and you add sour cream. So I think it's probably a fat thing. It is, absolutely. Chris, do you mind if I start with this No, actually, actually, I got this question a couple years ago at a live event, and I couldn't answer it properly. So that's why Sarah's here. Okay, well, it's... it's, Hi, Sarah. There are only... Hello. <laughs> there are only two dairy products that you can boil. One is heavy cream and the other one is creme fraiche. Oh. Because of the butterfat content, you are absolutely right. They have the highest butterfat content of all dairy products. It also helps if you don't add it cold and if you don't oh. boil it, but you do want to simmer it in the case of her sauce. I know it very well. It's delicious. Oh. It's sort of like... Campbell's tomato soup on steroids. It's oh, fantastic. So um, but another way around it, if you want to use half and half, if you even want to use sour cream or if you want to use, you know, a lower fat, what you do is thicken the sauce first with, you know, a roux or flour or cornstarch, and that will stabilize the sauce so that you can add the lower oh. fat dairy, and it should be okay. Oh. But um, in general, just remember the only two you can boil are creme fraiche and now, heavy now cream. Now I have a question, which is the acidity of the tomatoes. Does this affect the breaking of the, yeah. of the dairy? Oh, I'm sure it did. It yeah. would. You know, the higher the acid, the more likely. Because as we all know, sometimes tomatoes are sweeter and less acidic. Right. Yeah. But um, stick I with wonder- it. Half and half is always going to curdle if you boil it. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I Go wondered ahead. if I added butter to it before I added the cream, the half and half. But No. 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 Not that I'm aware of because the butter will melt and separate. I mean, that's my impression. I think the best thing is either thicken it or use the high-fat dairy. All right. I'll try the thickening thing. Uh, I don't always have heavy cream in my refrigerator, but I always have half and half. Well, thanks, you guys. And you put it in your coffee a bit. I'm going to think of another question for you. Oh, please do. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Thank thank you. you. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring at one eight five five four bowtie That's one eight five five four two six nine eight four three. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. And who do we have on the line? My name is Susan Monkmeyer. I'm speaking with you from Minneapolis. Oh, how nice. Well, Susan, what is your question? I have a question that has stumped me for a long time. It goes back to my childhood when I used to do a lot of baking with my grandmother, who was a terrific cook from scratch and also a high school chemistry teacher. And what she taught me was that when you're measuring uh, semi-solid ingredients like peanut butter or shortening, that what you needed to do was get a glass measuring cup, fill it part of the way up with water and put your measuring spoon in there too, So if you wanted a half a cup of peanut butter, you'd put a cup of water in a glass measuring cup with your spoon, take the spoon out, and then scoop up enough peanut butter on the spoon till that water level went up from one to one and a half cups, and that would be your half cup of peanut butter. Now, she made this sound like this was a basic principle that all good cooks know about, but I've never seen it mentioned in uh, any of the cookbooks that I have 
So was she right? Was she wrong? Well, I, I think it's perfectly acceptable to do it that way. I, I remember learning about this when I was at cooking school, but we never certainly measured things this way. I mean, cleanup is easy. You know, one of the things with yeah. peanut butter, you know, or um, shortening is, is it's mess, you know, afterwards. So this is much neater way to do it. But it's sort of been replaced with, um, you know, the measuring cups we were talking about before, the dry measuring cups, and also with what is that gadget called, Chris? The Adjust-A-Cup? The Adjust-A-Cup. Do you yeah. know about that, Susan? It is looks that like one of those tubes that you yeah. fill yeah. up with? And, yeah. It looks like a really big hypodermic. Yeah. yeah, it's like a plunger thingy. I can't, for the life of me, explain why they did that. It's completely acceptable a, a, and a completely dumb, accurate. If you had peanut butter, I can understand it, right? Yeah. Because it'll stick. But what else would it work with? It wouldn't work with molasses. It wouldn't work with anything that's... Well, shortening. Butter. Shortening. Yeah. Butter. Yes. I, I think mainly the things that are solids. high in fat. Yes, yeah, solids. But solids. Okay, so, so let me and see. And the water has to be cold. So, um, so you, you put the spoon in. You take it out. You get a thing of peanut butter. You put it in. It doesn't quite measure just right. Just add more. You have to take it out. No, you just, just add more. just keep adding more. You just keep adding it. And you look, of course, at the side, the meniscus right. thingy. And you just keep adding it till it gets up there. So, the meniscus thingy. You know, I don't... You know, I'm not a scientist. But it must must be cold. I mean, obviously, if you put butter right. in, a, in hot water, it would just melt, and that would be a disaster. I would use a just a cup or just spray a uh, measuring, measuring cup, cup and a dry measuring shove cup. Shove the peanut butter molasses shortening yeah. in it, and, and that's probably quicker and easier. Yeah. But this is certainly legitimate. Yeah, no, yeah. I even learned about it in school, although we never did it. So I don't know why we learned about it. That's what you do in school. You learn about it, but you never do it. <laughs> no, that's, that's not That's the true. concept of education. All right. Well, <laughs> Susan, thank you for calling. You're welcome. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to add flavor to heavy cream. I mean, we all know the heavy cream you buy at the supermarket is ultra-pasteurized, which means it has no flavor. So how about using bay leaves or vanilla bean or cinnamon sticks, cardamom pods, or even star anise? You can add them directly to the cream, bring the cream to a slight simmer in a saucepan, then remove from the heat and let it sit covered for about 30 minutes you now have flavored cream. By the way, we use this recipe in our sweet potato casserole this Thanksgiving, and you can also use it in ice cream or hot chocolate or even for whipped cream, or you can simply pour flavored heavy cream over fresh fruit or a warm cobbler. Thanks for listening to Mill Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also on our own website, which is MilkStreetRadio.com. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior Audio Engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help, Debbie Paddock. Theme Music by 2Bob Crew. Additional Music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 